This is the Paul Truesdell Podcast. Due to the extensive holdings of our sponsor, Fixed Cost Financial, and your hosts, you should expect that a conflict of interest exists with all companies discussed. And now, two Pauls in a pod. The Paul Truesdell Podcast. Let's get started. It's actually a Thursday, and we're going to put this up on Friday, of course. And this is the uh, Paul Truesdell podcast. Uh, for those of you who might hear a little bit of background noise, we have a tremendous thunderstorm going on and rainstorm right now. So uh, we were going to delay it, but uh, let's get started. What do you say? Yeah, let's do it. So here's the thing. Yesterday, um, I'm in the office, and Paul comes in and says to me, he said, holy cow, you got to look at what's going on. And we were basically following, and as close as you can in real time, the attack by the Ukrainians on the big mothership that's uh, off the coast there. And why don't you just kind of run through that? I'll give some color commentary and then we'll go into maybe talk about what we learned today and then we'll follow up with a little bit about um, the disinformation that the Russians are really good at. So yesterday we're sitting back and you... Yeah, well all the information we were getting was was obviously after the fact, but it was before it had hit any of the mainstream. Um, obviously the Ukrainians are very, very good with their OPSEC or operational security. Um, it's one of the reasons they've been able to do things that the Russians have been baffled by is they don't broadcast their capabilities to the world until they've actually been deployed and, and used on the on the battlefield, which which is important because it keeps everybody in the dark. And operational security for me, and I you know I always tell people this when I was a police officer a hundred years ago, when you did a search warrant or your advice or whatever you're doing, we actually had issues with a crime scene tech who was married to a drug dealer and eventually she had to get fired and it was a big deal. But, you know, we had guys that were killed on the job when I came on, um, did a search warrant. One guy got blown up, one guy got killed and immediately attended a funeral for a TPD officer, a detective, Jerry Roth. You know, those kind of things, I understand really because it struck home. I literally saw Jerry three days earlier. So operational security when it comes to war is a really big deal. And those guys are great at it. Yeah, and their, their official forces are very good. Unfortunately, the beginning part of the war, a lot of um, incidents happened because of volunteers and citizens who were uh, not really understanding the full picture of how severe this is. If you recall, there was a bombing with a cruise missile of a shopping center in Kiev. Um, it was a brand new mall. It had been built like in the past year or two, and it got hit. And the reason for it is it has these big um, uh, big overhangs, basically, uh, big enough that you can drive big vehicles underneath. And the Ukrainians were using that to hide some of their air defense systems from Russian radar systems. Some idiot, city-living idiot, I'll just leave it at that, who doesn't understand anything about the world other than his favorite coffee shop, thought, oh, I see something out of my apartment window. This is really neat. Take picture, post to internet, get upvotes. And it got struck because this idiot posted it on the internet. Killed a whole bunch of people. And they, they ended up arresting him <laughs> because they had put out public notices that don't publish pictures of military equipment unless you are told that you're allowed to. And it's for stuff like this. Um, since then, though, people have obviously gotten the message that, you know, probably upwards of a 1,000 to 2,000 people have been killed because of lapses in operational security, largely outside of the help hands of, of uh, soldiers themselves, but, you know, civilians basically just being stupid. So, Not to be a Debbie Downer, but you know in the United States, if we were at war, there would be no way possible to keep people from taking pictures. I mean, look at every time there's a riot or a protest or something. You have, sometimes you have as many people with cameras out at the front of the protest.
protests as you do people actual protesters. Like, yeah, it, I, I love the, when the, these politicians the are fame is unbelievable. Yeah, politicians or anybody famous or whatever the event, and you know, you say used to uh, have a big lighter and you used to, <laughs> sure, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Now it's all cameras and everybody's taking pictures. Nobody's paying attention. Why, why even bother go to the honest to God sidebar? Why even bother going to an event if you're not going to watch it? Everybody's taking pictures and like you yeah. missed the event. Yeah, absolutely. Well, anyways, go ahead. Well, to finish that total tangent, that's why I think comedians in the past few years have been very smart to take people's phones at their events because it forces people to be in the moment in the room and it also keeps their content from leaking out and, and becoming stale within a day. Um, anyways, so yeah, the the, uh, the operational security has been pretty good and what I saw, uh, I think this happened between 1 and 2 or be, between midnight and 2 a.m. I know for sure, uh, it, local time. There's so the, the Russian Black Sea Fleet, I think, was originally comprised of 21 ships. Um, now, there's a whole bunch of background on this. I'll give real quick because it's, it's interesting. Uh, the Turks invoked some old uh, treaty over naval uh, access to the Black Sea. And because Turkey controls the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus, which are the two ends that enable access to Black Sea through the Mediterranean, um, they control those. I would, in fact, I was just looking up the on Wikipedia and a few other places they call it the Istanbul Channel. Yeah, yeah, but but at one end is the, they call the Bosphorus, right. and the other end they call the Dardanelles. I um, mean, they're they're stuck. When you go through that, you're there. Yeah, you're. It's 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 a more ancient version of uh, many man-made canals that exist. Suez today. Canal, for yeah, example, Suez yeah. or Panama. Or Panama, whatever. exactly. The difference is it's big. Yeah, and you can move basically any ship you want through there, as far as I'm aware. Um, but Turkey controls. Yeah, so but it does go through Turkish territory, and it, it, it they control it. So they they instituted. I, I don't have it in my notes, but they instituted uh, some international agreement that they have based on wartime access to the Black Sea. And basically, the rule is that if you are a home, if your home port as a ship is in the Black Sea, you're allowed to get through as a warship. But if you are a warship and you are that is not your home port, you're not allowed to go through. It's that simple. So Real the, simple little technical things make all the difference the world. Yeah, so for example, if the Ukrainians had a bigger navy that wasn't destroyed, then obviously they would be able to go get back home regardless of the conflict, and the Russians same thing. Uh, regardless of the conflict, their home port ships to the Black Sea would be able to get through. Um, and obviously the Russians have a very large Black Sea fleet and always have, because it is a uh, very important piece of territory for them. The flagship, let's say was, the Moscow or Moskva it is a missile destroyer, I believe. I'm not the greatest expert on naval equipment and speeds and feeds and all this stuff, but I have a decent grasp. So you know, right. if I make an error because and you and you and I and you were able to debunk my minor indiscretion on uh, Wikipedia, then good for you. I'm not I'm not claiming to be an expert. Well, the key thing is this was this is a key component of the Russian Navy yes. in the battle where they're trying to overthrow Ukraine. That's all there is to it. That is. This is a major well, shift. Yeah, it's it's not an piece. aircraft carrier of ours, but in, no. in equivalency, this is like having their aircraft carrier. In other words, we got an aircraft carrier and we have all these ships around it. Well, there, they got this thing. It's not an aircraft carrier, but that's that's their big boy out there. Yeah, so obviously different different navies have different rules for flagships and what qualifies and how, you know, how they determine like whatever. 
typically speaking, as far as I'm aware, the admiral or whoever the commander in charge of like the battle group or the operation or whatever it's called would uh, obviously under different circumstances they group them differently. Um, would be this this would be the ship that he would command and control the entire uh, fleet on. And so very important. Yeah. So I mean, it's not the newest ship out there, but it was definitely one of the biggest ones. And uh, you can tell it was designed for its purpose based on its armament. So it has 16 of these giant five-ton long-range uh, anti-ship cruise missiles. Um, they're so big that they're like integrated into the design of the ship. Um, they've got a what is it? The the naval equivalent of the like S-300 anti-air defense system. Um, obviously, because it's uh, the naval equivalent, it's designed to shoot uh, low-flying cruise missiles that would potentially attack it uh, that are skimming the water as well as everything from aircrafts, drones, stuff like that. And so that's kind of interesting uh, because some people were saying that, you know, it's a big deal, blah, blah, blah. They they knocked out, you know, the, the air defense capability for the entire fleet. Um, it's not the entire fleet, but it's the command and control for the entire fleet, as far as I'm aware. The other the other major thing is this one, I mean, it, it is a capable air defense system, even if it is a, a, a older generation naval specialized S-300. That doesn't mean that it wouldn't be able to, to defend itself from an attack that it suffered. So anyways, point is, it is a very big, uh, sophisticated ship. It may have it may have some issues because of its old age, but it's not um, what has happened based on all of the defense experts I was able to get information from, people from American, British, and, and other navies around the world. Um, this shouldn't have happened regardless of how sophisticated the missile is, which is what we we're going to get to. So anyways, this ship was uh, reported that it was hit by two Ukrainian Neptune anti-ship missiles, and a lot of people kind of cocked their head and went, what? Because the Neptune system is basically a Ukrainian uh, redeveloped version of a Russian anti-ship missile. Uh, it's ground or, or land-launched. Um, it's long-range. I think it's approximately 200 kilometers in uh, outside range as far as the ability to hit something uh, accurately. Um, and it's been something they've been working on for years. Apparently, it's been a, a bit of a gripe among Ukrainian general staff because it has been delayed and had issues. Um, and and this is the Neptune, and this is really important because I know in just a moment you're going to tell us about its development and how its development was actually still ongoing when the war yes. began. And I want to also emphasize, I want you to cover, not only did they launch this thing and take out the ship, not only was this thing in development, you're going, you got better insight on this than I do, but also they were able to launch the damn thing. That by itself shows how poorly the Russians have no satellite, no air support. Superiority. They were not. They're not. This is huge. Yeah, Russian, <laughs> on so many different levels. Russian incompetence is exceedingly high. It's well beyond what I think most defense experts figured. Um, to me, after my propaganda for the past thirty years wore off, and I started looking at this rationally, none of this surprises me. Uh, the Russians are very, very, very um, lackadaisical. It seems in almost everything that they do. So, so, anyways, Ukrainians have have these developed these. these these missiles, uh, Neptune, whatever. There's some some special nomenclature for them, but Neptune anti-ship missiles. And before the war, obviously they were they were developing them. Uh, they got I think like one or two batteries fully built, but they were still in the process of getting those implemented. And sometime around this month, they were scheduled to start actually deploying them to the Black Sea coast. And you know, for people that don't know or or, or have any knowledge about this, um, just because you have a missile doesn't mean it's useful. A good example is the Russians, like, oh look, we captured a an NLA. 
Like, okay, but those are, that's a spent tube, so that's not a missile. Or, oh, we captured uh, javelin tubes. Yep, retreating Ukrainian forces left the big heavy javelin tubes behind. Yep, they did. But you never caught the clue, which is the command and control unit for the missile, so it's useless. It's, it's, a, it's a giant paperweight. Well, let me jump in there. For those of you who are maybe struggling a little bit with what Paul said, uh, so you launch a missile and you have this tube, but think of it in terms of something that's a little bit more relatable. You go to a crime scene and you say, oh, look, I recovered bullets. No, you didn't recover the bullet. You recovered what? You recovered the shell. Yeah. So you have, let's say, a uh, semi-automatic and boom, 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 boom. It's ejecting. The shells are on the ground. You know, so you you have the cartridge, you have the bullet, you have the shell. You know, there's a whole lot of components. You didn't get anything working. <laughs> okay. It's like saying I got I got the uh, corn husk and saying that's corn, not corn. Yeah. I, I think a better relatable analogy would be I got, I have bullets. Congratulations. You and every other idiot in America have bullets. You have a gun though? Yep. Okay. Not a crime. Go away. Go throw them down the street and hopefully maybe some shrapnel will hit Except you. if you bring bullets to Washington, D.C. I think it's yeah. a felony and they put you away forever. Yeah. Spent shell cases, spent shell casings in D.C. will land you in jail. Yeah. Just, just so you know, everybody knows this is a little quick sidebar. If you go to D.C., make sure that if you drive, you scour your car. You're never, don't even take a spent casing in there. They will put you in jail for possession of a spent casing. No weapons or paraphernalia. No even, intent. Even anything that resembles anything. Just do, just don't, don't just don't take it. Don't, even. Off, don't drive in don't drive to DC period. There's no reason to just take just take the, the uh, whatever the highway is that goes around it. It's fine. Yeah. Um, Anyways, back on. Yeah, so it's it's like having bullets without a gun, except it's a really weird specialized bullet that requires a very specialized gun. And so the same thing applies for these Neptune missiles. A, an anti-ship missile is absolutely useless without its ground control radar, its launch system, and its and all of the other complement of data feeds that it needs to actually launch these things. Um, they can even be uh, given extra information, of, like in the U.S. military, they can be these missiles can be given extra information from AWACS and and other airplanes that have radar and stuff like that on them, ships. So you know you can have a big battle group and you can launch a anti-ship missile at something that's way over the horizon potentially, and you can be using the drones and the other ships in your fleet and like all this stuff to be able to give you extra information to get a better hit. And that the, the, these work the same way. Uh, they basically took a Russian design missile and they have applied all of the best practices and standards over the past 30 years or whatever since that original design was implemented into a very modern, totally domestic produced, uh, not just missile, but but whole system. So one of the interesting things was is the Russians apparently failed to destroy the Neptune radars and everything that were being prepared for deployment before the war started. Um, that shows an immense loss or, or, or inability to have good intelligence because the one thing that the Black Sea fleet is vulnerable to is ground-launched missile attacks. Um, really, the only way the Ukrainians can can defend themselves against the Black Sea fleet, they lost their navy in the first hour of the war, so they don't have they don't have a navy. Um, it's ground-launched um, anti-ship missiles and airplanes. That's it. Well, they have good, you know, on paper, the Russians have good air defenses, so you wouldn't think that would be a problem. So you'd think they would have had this whole thing figured out. Apparently not. Um, so anyways, they hit the ship with two of these missiles, and as the hours went on, details on it were increasingly um, interesting, but also eye-opening for just how this type of thing works. So one of the things we're going to talk to you about now is is Paul's going to get into some of the details. I'm going to give you some historical color on the thing, but every single person has to understand this. Russian disinformation and propaganda is very much like Baghdad Bob. And if you don't 
wonder who Baghdad Bob is, look it up. We've talked about this quite a bit. We've laughed about it. So what you see coming across on the mainstream news, understand that here in the United States, you may have the State Department, Department of Defense, and others pressuring our news organizations to not talk about this too much because you don't want to upset the Russians too much because I think everybody is concerned that, oh, Vlad might go uh, nuclear. And one of the things we've talked extensively about in our office, again, remember what we do. We have talked extensively, so what if he does? Maybe they don't have the command and control. They've had Marines who have refused to do landings with them. They may not have nukes that work. They have massively expensive uh, ground vehicles that haven't been maintained, tires that are rotted on $30 million uh, land-based mobile launch systems. So you, you have to take all these things into consideration. I mean, you really do. And so when we say things like, especially when I talk to people who are not clients, I say, yeah, you know, I actually think it's a little bit less right now. I think we're about an 80, 85% chance. I had as high as 95% chance of having a nuclear war, but I don't think that is such a big deal. In the long-term view of things, sometimes you just got to kick somebody's rear end and get it over with. You know, just, it's like Muhammad Ali, you know, when he was fighting, he did rope-a-dope and you just, you know, left, 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 jab, jab, jab. But usually what wins a fight, somebody throws the hail maker and knocks you out. So I think this is one of those little hail makers that is going to make Russians go back on their heels. So Ukrainians have the Neptune. Tell everybody exactly what we believe happened with very good sourcing that we don't discuss. Very good sourcing on what happened. Yeah, so as, as the hours followed the initial claim of the attack, obviously lots of stuff through the course of a war gets claimed. Lots of it is disinformation or distractions or whatever. Uh, this proved to be more and more interesting as time went on as the Black Sea's um, radio communications lit up like a Christmas tree. Uh, Their Morse code emergency line that they use started chirping out that they had been hit, that they had fires on board, that they they were taking on water. Um, I think people remained on the ship for approximately three hours. The closest Russian port is in Sevastopol, uh, Crimea. They, three or four ships took off immediately from the port to go and rescue what was going on over there. As far as I can tell, the ship was over by Snake Island in that area, um, so over by Romania. And the people, of course, are referencing that that's where the uh, they shot up and captured some of the Ukrainian soldiers who were stationed on that island, uh, the, the famous incident at the opening of the war. Um, so how did it happen is the question. And that's the interesting thing that started to drip out as more information was made available. What it looks like happened was Ukrainians, once again, are much more sophisticated than people give them credit for. They're, they're, the, they're the little army that, that absolutely can. When I say little, I mean in like financing and technological sophistication compared to the, the giant paper bear that they're fighting today. And I think that's important to repeat what you just said, and that is paper bear. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, one and all, the Russians are not the big bad bear that everybody thinks they are. Uh, we're going to prove that as we go along, probably an additional podcast podcasts that we do, but uh, yeah, there's a, it's not there. Yeah, I mean, it's just a difference in, in, in how you portray yourself. The, there have been countless militaries throughout history that they're better at propaganda than they are fighting a war. Nothing wrong with that. It's a good strategy. It's, way, it's, it's, it's effective in some cases, especially if you have a past demonstrable ability of actually doing something very scary. Yeah, I, in fact, I, I, I have said this on many occasions, one of the first do-or-die fights I had in Tampa. Uh, I put on my sap gloves and 12 new. Yeah. <laughs> 
at Main Street in Eusalina, and I had a I had to fight this guy. And you know, it was always better to it was always better to solve a problem by talking. But this wasn't going to happen, so yeah. I had to prove myself to the housing projects, and I had to beat the holy crap out of the guy. And he was way bigger than me. I'm six two, two fifteen. This guy was probably six five, three ten. You know? Big boy. Yeah, he was a big boy. He won't kick my you know what. So he was not a happy camper. I think he got I forgot what he did. He didn't pay for his lunch at Moses White's, and they called. That was a famous barbecue place back in the day. So yeah, imagine fighting somebody over a unpaid lunch bill. Jeez. Yeah, can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Um. So they ended up. Uh, let's see. They flew. Reports are that they flew some drones. Um. Nobody knows. Again, like all of this is 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 word of mouth. Like there's no official anything from the Ukrainians. I think the Ukrainians are like, what attack? We don't know about anything. They're they're playing stupid again. Just like after they did when they sent a cruise missile into Belgrade and then they sent two uh, attack helicopters to go blow up some stuff in Belgrade, uh, which is in Russia, by the way. Um, and then Ukrainian special forces or special operations of some sort uh, blew up a major rail line somewhere outside of Belgrade, which again is deep inside Russia. Um, so, you know, the Ukrainians are like, well, we don't know what you're talking about. What, uh, we don't see anything. Meanwhile, they're actually doing stuff. And, and it, the point is, is basically just to, like, it's just, it's, it's, it's humiliation of the Russians because they can't actually secure their own lines. They're just, it's, it's funny, but at the same time, it's kind of sad that a military of this size, that's, that the whole world is allowed to have nuclear weapons, can be this incompetent. Um, yeah, and you know, one of the things that is like in journalism, everybody who knows me knows that I cannot stand most journalists because they ask one deep question. They just ask one question to get a response, and that's what they report. But they don't ask the, the 10 questions that are necessary. Uh, well, in other words, if anybody asks the questions, you can see real quickly, it's all a bunch of hogwash they're, they're oh, saying. Yeah. Like, oh, well, we don't know. We had a we had a tanker that exploded on the uh, on the train track and blah, blah, blah. Really? I mean, then why is there this big depression as opposed to something that blew upward and, you know. Just... Yeah, it's like that old that old phrase, you know, if you don't understand something, ask ask why 10 times, you'll get to the root of the problem. It's always amazing to me the number of people I meet and I say, just ask, you know, well, I don't know what to ask. I don't know where to go. You do this in podcasting. You know, oh, I don't even know where to begin. Start with who, what, where, when, why, and how. And you get basic rules. Of what journalism. was that again? I mean, how many times have people said that you, you know, you have a huge network and you've talked about the same thing. Just ask who, what, where, when, why, and how. What, yeah. what are those questions again? Yeah, just, <laughs> I'm not being, I'm just being mean, but it is what it is. Yeah. Um, so they flew some drones and supposedly, and the Russian Black Sea Fleet, specifically this ship, the Moscow or Moskva, it has, every ship has a limitation on radars and there's only so much bandwidth that it can allocate and energy to detecting targets. So, you know, the bigger the ships, one of the big things that the navies uh, spend a lot of money on is increased power capabilities and all the networks and, it's, and it's all this very complicated, sophisticated um, detection equipment to try and see stuff. Like, to, it's all just, it's all defensive in nature first and then it's it's offensive secondary because um, the same radars can be used to launch a missile out at somebody else as well. Um, but detecting something incoming is very, you know, it's, that's that's their utmost priority. You've got a billion dollar ship, you need to be able to keep it afloat and not just get sunk by, you know, some dudes on a, on a, a floating life raft, right? Yeah, and the key thing is not only is this technology uh, tech heavy, but it's also, as you said, it's power hungry. So you've got to increase the capacity on these ships, which are not battery operated, by the way, for all the greenies out there. These ships have to generate a really 
massive amount of energy. And that energy, that electricity, has to use be used to power all these defense systems, all of the radars, all, all the stuff that's out there. It's just, it's huge. Yeah, I think this ship is basically just a big diesel. Nothing particularly special about it. But uh, yeah, so, you know, having that in mind that they have a limited amount of ability to see stuff and that under certain circumstances, they will focus all of their energy towards an area where they're trying to get better targeting or whatever. So the the assessment so far that I was able to figure out is they flew some drones, one, two, maybe more, who knows, at the outer bands of the Moskva's uh, uh, radar envelope to basically force them to dump a lot of a lot of resources into trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Once they did that, I saw something. I don't know. I only saw it in one place, so it may just be total total hearsay. But they may have potentially launched a missile or two at it to distract it further. And then from the opposite direction, they launched these Neptune missiles at it. And a lot of people were saying that you know Neptunes are what they are, but you know this should have been able to be stopped. This is true, but I, it, I think it is also important to take into account that this is a totally new weapons system that may have some unique properties that actually are very effective. Granted, this is only this is a this is a two of two hit that we are aware of. Um, it's a one-time use so far, but uh, the the rumor is that this thing, some predetermined amount of a distance before impact, will go even lower and skim the ground as low as approximately three meters. Is that what happened yesterday? Who knows? Because the reality is, is I was also able to figure out, uh, you know, it's pretty simple stuff. Actually, you know, you can just pull up uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, ocean weather reports, and out there it was the weather was awful. So when you combine all these factors together with really really high um, choppy uh, waters, with distracting them with the drones and whatever, and harassing them, and then you shooting a missile at them, it was honestly like perfect combination of orchestration and taking advantage of an opportunity. It's a poo storm for them. That's yeah. all there is to it. But the thing is, is so in the end it was it was effective uh to to get to the point here the and the ukrainians the people need to realize these are not dumb people no these are very very intelligent people but the other thing about them being intelligent is yes they're intelligent but the other thing is they have familiarity with these russian systems as as much familiarity as we do because we employ like giant rooms full of defense analysts to figure this crap out and synthesize human intelligence and satellite and, and all kinds of stuff and figure this stuff out ourselves. So, you know, we have a grand, very deep knowledge of these things because we spent a lot of money and resources on it. These people have a lot of knowledge about them because they live next door to these people. It's a lot easier. And that's one thing to also remember is, you know, fighting your neighbor is typically a harder uh, adversary than somebody that you just, you know, on the other side of the world where you're you're not really aware of each other's capabilities um, because you have the the opportunity to prepare. Um, So the the following reports were that uh, they had fully evacuated the ship that the missiles hit and impacted caused fires on board and at some point detonated munitions on board um the munitions on board there's multiple weapons systems that could have been potentially detonated um if you're going to be charitable you could say it was oh it was only the 30 millimeter ammo store i think that's highly unlikely i think the likelihood is is that it probably hit some of those big giant uh, anti-ship cruise missiles um from what i was able to find out about them unless they been upgraded or changed since they were some type of liquid repellent which implies that they
they would be more flammable if they were to be destroyed. Because they are so big, the likelihood of that causing a gigantic domino effect of cascading failures on a ship is highly likely. Um, and they were able to evacuate people and uh, then whatever the emergency signaling from the ship basically stopped cold. And then there were reports that it was taking on water and stuff like that. So the assumption is that it has sunk, but nobody knows for sure. Maybe they were able to prevent it from sinking. Nobody really knows. The Russians say that it's uh, they, they ended up confirming that it, uh, ammunition on board caught fire and that they had evacuated the crew for their safety. That was what the Russians said. And that right. they were, quote unquote, towing it to port. Well, obviously that is not the full story. Whether or not, whether this thing has sunk or not is nobody really knows. There's no visual imagery of it yet. Even the U.S. Defense Department basically said, heard the reports and we are waiting for our own confirmation as to the actual events. Um, but they did admit that this is a huge incident if true. The uh, follow-up I saw this morning was that there was Romanian and Turkish sources saying that the Russians had been able to rescue 54 crew members from the ship. Well, 54 crew members is only about 10% of full crew. So if that is to be believed, that ship got absolutely destroyed. Like towing it to port, I guess. That's as close to annihilation as you can get. It's the opposite of decimation. (laughs) Yes. I always get a kick out of people saying, oh, we're going to be decimated. Oh, that's a 10% loss. Not a big deal. Annihilation is a 100% loss. That's the one you want to avoid. Yes. Words have meaning. Um, So yeah, the the ship, uh, nobody knows for sure. We will see. If they do tow it to port, if there is a 90% loss of people on board, that sucks. That sucks for morale. That sucks for basically, if you're the Russians, that is not good. If you're the Ukrainians, that's a giant fist pump moment because it's viewed as an unsinkable ship because it has so many sophisticated radars and and uh, generally speaking, a very highly trained crew. Um, as far as like uh, them towing it to port, it's totally possible that it did not totally sink. Uh, reason being that you know they have different they have different uh, chain and things inside these things to prevent uh, a boat from totally sinking. But at the same time, if you have a bunch of just absolute devastation above, above the waterline, like, you know, it, it can be rendered useless. So if they tow it to port, my get, my thinking so far is that it is, if it if uh, the munitions did go off and it is uh, as bad as the reports are seeming, it's probably just scrap metal at this point. It's There's no way to repair that. Oh, no. A good example is, I mean, we lost a giant ship a couple, like a year or two ago, and it was due to a fire. Uh, one sailor was having a spat with another sailor he or she was having an affair with, and they uh, decided one of I don't remember what, who did what, but anyways, one of them decided that in their rage at each other that they would set their cabin on fire, and it took the whole ship down because basically incompetence combined with not enough people being on board, something like that, and basically so we lost like a 1.4 billion dollar ship because of fire. Yeah, I'm not going to get into this when when that happened. You and I I, I, I expressed my views very strongly. I'm going to do them now. I don't care what anybody thinks. You know, sometimes boys and girls should be working in separate uh, areas. And uh, you put girls on ships and uh, things happen. The number of women that get pregnant on ships is off the charts. It's a fact. That's it's well known. And this was nothing more than a uh, domestic dispute that yeah. wiped out over $1 billion. And by the time you take all the costs that are involved in this thing, oh, yeah. it's going to be multi-billion dollars. They're not going to pay for it. I mean, <laughs> literally. <laughs> well, they're going to they gonna give them restitution. They're going to they're gonna dock their pay for yes. between now and twenty two eighty nine. Like, yes. You and all of your, your offspring going to the, going, a downline but yeah i mean look here here's the reality in life um 
Sometimes bad things happen when you uh, you don't think it through, and, and that's one of those goofy things you didn't think through, at least here in the U.S., we didn't think through the importance of maybe drilling for extra skill on firefighting. I mean, how bad was that? We, we do, but the problem was, I think, a lot, I think it was in port, and a lot of the people that were supposed to do that job were off, and I think some of the other people were more than a little lackadaisical and potentially right. even inebriated. Like, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a bad situation. So, but yeah, I mean, as far as as far as like having uh, different uh, competing groups of people on board a ship, let's say um, the problem with that is look at the living quarters on a navy ship, especially a fully staffed one. And if you want to see that, take a look at the uh, episodes of uh, what is it called, uh, low deck in the uh, especially the one for sailing because their quarters are really tight. And that if you're on if you're a worker on a yacht, that would be luxurious compared to being in the navy. Oh, absolutely. Because in these large ships in the Navy, one of the things that if you haven't been in the Navy, you just don't know, or if you don't know people who've been in the Navy, I mean, obviously I haven't. Um, and we've been on a few retired ships that are available for tours and things over the years. Um, the living quarters, typically you share a bed with one other person. When that person's getting up, you're going to bed. You literally share the same living space. So there's 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 that much, you know, limited amount of extra space on board one of these, you know, ships. They, they, they utilize every person and every little space and nook and cranny on these things that they can and so because of that yeah it's eh, it, it's 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 good to, to design an environment where you have those types of problems uh where they don't occur they're, or they're very limited and unfortunately you know it is what it is um yeah so so to go back to the to the russian stuff the the interesting a couple interesting things i was hearing from some of these uh you know some of them freelance some of them professional uh defense analysts were that regardless of of capabilities of the ship, whether or not this thing was upgraded or it was built in the 80s or whatever. And, and Russia has spent a significant amount of money on their on their surface fleet, as well as their submarine fleet in the past uh, decade, uh, because they were, you know, quite honestly, kind of pathetic, uh, being unserviced as they should have been following the uh, end of the Cold War. And anyways, the, the conclusion from multiple people, specifically a uh, gentleman who was in the British military, um, said that this is a classic, uh, classic attack that really anybody would kind of formulate something like this to take out one of these ships. This is really textbook and the fact that they were able to pull it off shows that the Ukrainians you know, they drill properly, they, they understand systems that they're up against but it also shows a certain level of incompetence from the Russians uh, that they were not able to protect themselves from something like this. And uh, this gentleman talked about how he uh, the last time he was stationed on a British uh, fleet, they had a drill uh, and of something very similar happened. They got distracted with incoming planes and the uh, uh, a second group of, of planes came at them from another direction and they got a simulated hit on their ship and they didn't even know where it came from because all of their resources were focused in one area trying to win a drill, basically. Um, he said, so, you know, it's a good example of how you can have some of the world's best equipment, some of the best trained soldiers, and you can have, uh, I, think he, I think the phrase he used was, you can still have your head up your ass. And that is totally possible that's what happened in the other day. But at the same time, it's totally different when you're doing a drill and you're in a war. These guys have been out at sea for 50 days. They should know exactly what they... They should be taking this seriously every minute of every day. Well, there's a because couple... Because they're up against an adversary that is not that has been proven to not be incompetent. It's not like it was maybe in the first week where, you know, people thought that Ukraine was maybe this little, little Bambi that it was going to get, you know, slaughtered. No. They're very competent. And if you're a Russian sailor, you should be afraid, not just because of what's 
going on inside Ukraine, but two other ships have been effectively destroyed by the Ukrainians so far. One with a drone that was in port. I can't remember the name of the port, but um, they were delivering troops and equipment, and uh, a drone went overhead and hit it right where its ammunition stores are, where it's very poorly protected, and just blew the thing up, and it sank where it was docked in the port. And then there's one other ship that was took, taken out of commission that I think was a, a troop transport or something. They got hit by some type of shorter range uh, cruise missile of some type um, a couple weeks ago. So the point is, is the Ukrainians have been proven that they actually are fairly knowledgeable about all this stuff and they know how to how to do a sneaky attack on you. This is the kind of thing I would if if I was a, you know uh, if I was commanding tr other other Navy soldiers or sailors, uh, I, I would I would reiterate to these guys every day that like do not let your guard down. These guys are they will get us at some point. Well, one Everybody of the things to be very very careful. Well, what, basically what we do if you think about it, and for those of you who are listening again, sticking with this, we do forecasting here. We do that all day long, day in and day out. And so I would say there's three things that if we're in a think tank and we're trying to forecast, we're trying to analyze, we're trying to project on what's going to happen. Number one, are the Russian sailors as incompetent as many of the Russian ground forces are? Because if you, anybody who says that they are competent to the level that we are here in the United States, you're, you're nuts. You're, 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 you're high, you're drunk, you're yeah. crazy. So 50 days ago, if you asked me that, I would say the Russian Navy is likely very competent based on their expenditures and where Russia has focused their money and resources over the past decade, decade and a half. The Navy, the above and below water fleets, the and the missile defense, and I mean the missile defense and um, uh, nuclear forces, the, I think they call them like the strategic missile forces or something. Um, they've received a huge chunk of the Russian defense budget. Right. And the and, and the other thing is, is being uh, Navy uh, surface ships, are, it's just, it's prestigious, right? I mean, who doesn't want, who wouldn't want to be in the Navy, especially during peacetime? Like, hell yeah. Float around on a boat, whatever. Um, you're generally speaking not in harm's way. So yeah, I mean, so 50 days I ago, I would have said they were very competent. Today, I guess the general level of malaise and incompetence across the entire military seems to just be a standard. So one of the things I have is, I have this thing called the 10 P's, people, product, process, price, performance, professionalism, et cetera. And if you go to school and you have a, a university degree, a master's degree, uh, you'll hear people, product, process all the time. I just took it from three and made it 10. So think along those lines in business. People, are the people there competent, the rank and file? In addition to which, are the supervisors, the generals, the commanders, the admirals, are they competent? Or some of these people just political appointees, which is what you saw years ago in civil wars and in this our civil war, revolutionary war, all that kind of stuff. As far as product goes, I would say, you know, is the product that they're putting out, is it up to snuff? Or is it a paper, you know, it's a paper lion, there's a paper tiger. And so if the product is up to snuff, then is it being serviced? And then the last thing is process. Uh, you drill for skill. And the question is, are they actually drilling for skill? And if the Navy, the Russian Navy is behaving and training similar to what the Russian fighter pilots and bombing pilots are, where they have to go and get private industry jobs, side gigs to get flying time in, because they have, what What did you tell me? They have like one third the flying time or half the flying time that we have for our uh, our, our military pilots. It's something substantially less. 
us. Yeah, it's increased in recent years because they've been, the aerospace forces have been given more budget. But yeah, I mean, going back like 10 to 15 years, especially uh, around the time that Putin first got into office, these guys, the the airplanes, the number of, of combat-worthy airplanes was literally under 100. And most of the pilots that got decent amount of hours were test pilots who effectively had side jobs working for uh, a MiG uh, and, and Sukhoi. Um, you know, the people that manufacture the airplanes that actually make money on selling them. Um, a lot of the guys who are just regular pilots in the Russian Air Force were literally flying commercial airliners to not only make extra money, but also to keep their flying hours, to keep their flight certifications. So, you know, only you and I talk about things like this. As far as I can see, I don't see anybody ever talking about this. The ones that do are in think tanks and they're in DC and they don't talk about this stuff, but we do all the you time. see it in some like defense analysis, yeah. and analysts like papers and things, but yeah, normal people don't generally speak and, and, about this sort of and thing. The thing is, I think normal people actually have the mental capacity, a lot of people to go, wow, I didn't think about that. So we're extrapolating, we're, we're attributing, you know, flight training, Russians, Air Force, and maybe, in the, you know, the Navy, that ship may have been literally, quote unquote, a sitting duck. We also, I talked to you about, uh, and I want to sh- share this with people, it's like when you do a search warrant, you know, you, you, you throw a flash bang grenade in and it distracts them. Other times you don't need to do that. You break windows in the back and you knock over garbage cans. You get distraction and then you, then you go in. You have the distraction. Again, I think what we are seeing here is the rules on a one-to-one combat, no different than on a major combat thing, um, work. I mean, literally, think about this, folks. If you walk around and you have a handful of, of salt in your hand and you're attacked and you throw that salt in the eyes of your attacker, you're going to be able to put distance between you and that person fairly quickly because they have to deal I'm, with that. I'm reminded of uh, King of the Hill, Dale Gribble, Pocket Sand. <laughs> Never would have thought of that. If you don't but, know what I'm talking about, just look up Pocket Sand, King of the Hill on YouTube. It's quite funny. So, okay, so think about it. Cartoon, King of the Hill, television, what I just said. The, the rules are the same. And so what you described, the attack on these guys, using the drones, using distraction, using weather, cover of, of confusion. And on top of that, it may have been literally a sitting duck. Could have been. Yeah, the, the, the circumstances. See, here's the thing. I mean, the Ukrainians didn't just line fire this stuff, e- even though maybe the conditions were just right that they could have. They they did everything by the book, what you would need to do to actually take out a, f- a flagship like this that has the capabilities it has. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you look at it, they're not just, they're playing for keeps because the reality is, is they have a limited amount of resources and they have a limited amount of surprise attack. I mean, you can only do this type of thing once. You know, if people who are well-read will, will remember a phrase by, I can't remember who, but if you, if you go for the king, you don't miss. And no, this, it, this is the kingship of queenship, I guess, in Navy terms, of the Black Sea Fleet. I want to go back to May of 1941. On May 26th and 27th in 1941, May, so we're coming up on an anniversary, uh, it's the uh, the Battle of the Bismarck. And one of the things, when we first talked about this, I, I said I was going to bring this up. You know, the Germans had the Bismarck, and that was one big mofo ship. That was a big boy. But what if you understand what they did, your allied forces that are out there, uh, what do we have? Well, the British had several battleships. They had the King George. They had the Rodney. They had the Ark Royal Aircraft Carrier, which was a really big deal. They had a couple of really heavy cruisers, the Norfolk and the Dorshire. They had a light cruiser called the Sheffield, one of my favorites, by the way. And they had several destroyers, a bunch of them, the Cossack, the Sikh, the Zulu, the Maroon, the Machina, and the Tatar. And then on top of that, uh, people laugh at the Poles all the time. Polish always get screwed over. But they even threw a destroyer in on that. It's called the Porion. And 
believe it or not, even in the thing was a Spanish heavy cruiser, the uh, Canarius. And so they attempted to rescue some of the people from the Bismarck. Bismarck was a, just a disaster for the uh, Germans. Titanic, obviously, we know the story there, the, the true story and the fake story. One day we'll talk about that. But the bottom line is what, what the British did in organization and, and in, in methodology, they didn't have drones, didn't have missiles. They didn't have a bunch of ships. They were very methodical in what they did to get that torpedo in and then start the, the ongoing sequence of events that took down the Bismarck. That was a huge deal. Yeah. Same thing Same thing with this. Is it, The tactics don't change. They just don't. Yeah, so fast forward to you know the implications. Obviously, it's a big deal for the Black Sea Fleet to lose your capital ship. It's a huge demoralizer, or flagship. It's a huge demoralizer. Um, the It brings into question the entire command of the Black Sea Fleet and their basic decision-making skills. Um, let's see. The A lot of people claimed, oh, well, they have other ships of this class to replace it, so it's not a big deal. And that is absolutely not true. I even heard some defense analysts saying this, and it's like, no. no this has more significance than people realize because of what I, the, what I mentioned earlier about Turkey. They have uh, blocked non-home port ships from, reach, from going into the Black Sea. They don't have any more of these ships in the Black Sea. The other, one, the other ones of this class are, or, or that it would be replacements, are part of their Atlantic or Pacific fleets. So that's not going to happen. Not getting in. Uh, unless they want to like start a conflict with Turkey, which you know at this point I wouldn't put it past them. But in any case, um, that's unlikely to happen. So that's an issue for the Russians because of the nature of this ship's capabilities. Do they have redundancies in their fleet? Potentially. Um, will it be harder? Yes. Um, long-term impacts of this on the war are, are interesting. Um, it shows you that the Ukrainians were willing to take out a much more strategic target than something that was tactical in nature. A good example of uh, what I mean by this is this ship didn't launch cruise missiles or land attack. This was purely an air defense and, and a naval defense ship. So because of this, shows you that could have they taken out a more sophisticated target, like something that launches cruise missiles that attacks ground forces. Absolutely. On paper, that may even look like a better option for reducing the Russian capabilities. But the problem is, is if you have a limited amount of opportunities, you want to take out the ship that one, does the most demoralization, and two, can potentially interfere in their future coordination capability. So it just shows you some longer-term thinking on their part, even though it is very difficult. Yeah, I, I, yeah again, it, I'm just impressed. I, I'm, I've been so impressed with the uh, Ukrainians and what they're doing. I, I just I don't want to sound silly about it, but, um, you know, and they're not that, I mean, Ukraine's got a lot of people. It does. It's a very large country, but it just, it's, they're the underdogs in this and they're little David beating the crap out of Goliath right now. And uh, it's, it's, uh, I'd love to see it. Well, the Ukrainian population, um, before everything went to heck in a handbasket, they've got about 44 million people. Um, and Russia's got like about 140. They've, they've gone up to about 146.8, uh, ever since 2018, they've been on the downside in population going down, down, down. Putin's even talked about when it. When you look at the population increases from like 140 to 146 or somewhere in there, right. that is because they acquired the land in Donbass and Crimea. That that's all that bump is from. It's not. It's not a. It's not a natural increase. So if you look at the the ethnic and education composition of Russia and the fighting age men primarily, not women, because women just tend not to be in combat. You can say G.I. Jane all you want, but it's just things are real. Um, they're going to get pretty close to parity with the Ukrainians because they've lost so damn many people. 
Yeah, average age in Ukraine is much, much lower than Russia. And because of that, they are much more on par as far as their ability to field uh, capable soldiers. And the problem for Russia is that these people are largely, their, their younger populations are largely people uh, that are in outside of the cities. They're, they're all over the giant expanse that is Russia. They're all over the place. Where Ukraine, you know, it's a big country, but at the end of the day, it is the size of France, effectively, as landmass. So it's, and, it, and it's pretty well developed compared to Russia. I mean, rural Russia is still a third world country. How many how so. many times have we seen Russians that were just unbelievably shocked at? Well, they got paved roads, they got phones, and even when they were retreating, they left they left dead comrades behind because they were taking washers and TVs. It was unbelievable. Yeah, they, that 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 opens a whole a whole can of worms as far as like different principles and things. But yeah, that's there's there's a lot of weird stuff like that. We used to do a, a podcast before we called it the Paul Truesdale podcast. We used to call it Connecting Dots, and we used to talk about all these kinds of things and say, this is what we do. We just take all this data and kind of pull it together and see what happens. Final words, a couple of our final comments, and then we'll, uh, we'll start to wrap up. What do you, what else you got here that we should cover? Yeah. The last thing I'll mention is that the, on the 50th day, the Russians, we have confirmation that the Russians have lost their 40th high ranking official. 40th? Yes. We have a, we have a, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dennis Mezhev, I think. Yep. So number 40 on day 50, I'd say that's pretty good. I think uh, maybe next Tuesday we'll talk about command and control. We'll talk about the ability of uh, law enforcement, sergeants, and the differences in strategies between <laughs> the uh, Russians and us and others and how valuable that is. Maybe we'll do that on Tuesday because you're seeing it right now. Yeah, it's it's for my entire life and I know your entire life, people have, have had debates and argued over which strategy is better. Is NATO's strategy better than the Russian slash Soviet strategy? Who, you know, you know, it's just it's a thing military people and people who focus on this stuff have, have always done. And the problem is, is for the since World War II, nobody's had an actual like concrete example of what does a NATO trained force versus a Soviet trained force actually look like uh, that doesn't have any excuses. And in you know the reality is is that the lessons from the Gulf War are perfectly playing out here. You want to see the difference between NATO and Soviet strategy and military equipment? Look at the Gulf War. If Ukraine was as well armed as the Russians are, the Russians would be absolutely destroyed, this war would already be over. So it's it's proven that the Western military doctrine is superior from a command and control and, and operational execution perspective, totally aside from equipment, which right now the Ukrainians have, generally speaking, about the same kind of equipment as the Russians, if not lesser, because they just don't have as much or they're not as uh, financially well uh, supplied as the Russians were before the war. Um, you know, they're getting more and more NATO stuff, but the reality is, is you know, they need thousands and thousands of vehicles just to catch up to parity. So it really shows you the power of the actual, the doctrine and the command and control and how much more flexible it is to respond to events that unfold on a battlefield. I mean, again, it's it's an old phrase, but it, it's true. You know, no no plan survives contact with the enemy. And that's why having, you know, your field, that's why your NCOs are important. Yeah, Paul, and when he says NCOs, he's talking about non-commissioned officers. Russians don't have it. They, they literally don't have it. We have it. And I, was always, I always say the same thing. In law enforcement, for anyone who's ever ever seen a cop, knows what a cop is, any way, shape, or form, sheriff, deputy, marshal, whatever you want to call it, an agency is only as good as its sergeants. You got to have great sergeants. And that equivalent would be your non-coms, okay? Yep. And so when you get lieutenant and captain, those are your, you know, your ranking officers. But you know the people that work, it's your non-coms and the guys and gals with boots on the street. You got to have that. You got to have that, that hierarchy. It's the most vital part of any military. Okay, with that, we're out of here. We'll see you on Tuesday. Hasta
kolege su im minjala. The Paul Truesdale podcast is sponsored in part by Fixed Cost Financial, a registered investment advisor. Fixed Cost Financial, where investing is done right. Visit fixedcostfinancial.com. That's fixedcostfinancial.com. The Paul Truesdale podcast is also sponsored in part by Lidie Today. Intelligently protecting your most precious assets. Visit Lidie.today. That's Lidie.today. You'll be glad you did. The Paul Truesdale podcast is also sponsored in part by the estate planning, elder law, and asset protection planning law firm of attorney Kelly and Truesdale. Visit Truesdale.net. That's Truesdale.net for more information. The Paul Truesdale podcast website is paultruesdale.com. That's paultruesdale.com.